Uh, Father, we uh, just pause after a busy week and uh, thank you for the privilege of being together uh, in this place. Uh, We are thankful that we do indeed have a great Savior and you've given us uh, your very word in the scriptures and um, we recognize that your son and your word are such gifts to us and uh, we want to engage your word this weekend and we want to know you more and we want to see how the things that you show us in scripture uh, combined with the person and work of Christ and uh, the spirit that indwells believers that those things allow us to come alongside hurting people with, with not just a competent care but we believe with, with care that honors you and, and care that is representative of what you want to do in the world. So thank you for these brothers and sisters, and, and we ask your blessing. It's going to be uh, some long days uh, tonight and tomorrow, but we pray that you'll give us stamina and that all these things will build us up in you and that you will change us uh, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got a notebook, hopefully all you got a notebook, um, you can turn to that first section there. And our talk this hour is called, What Makes Biblical Counseling Unique? Uh, let me ask you a question as we kind of come to this topic. Let's say it's Sunday morning, you're at your church, you're over at the little coffee dispenser and maybe hanging out there and you see one of your friends there. And, uh, you know, the small talk, how was your week, how's it going, you know, how about the cowboys, you know, whatever it is. And, um, and in the middle of your conversation, you recognize your friend isn't quite themselves. And, and so you get up the courage to say, are you okay? You know, you don't, you don't seem... And, and uh, in the course of conversation, uh, it comes out that uh, the night before church, Saturday night, your friend's 17-year-old daughter... Uh, they found her cutting herself in her bedroom. Would you know how to take the Word of God and minister to your friend in that moment of of grief, of fear, of sorrow, of um, maybe even feeling guilty? I did I did something wrong as a parent, and I, could, could you take the Word of God and minister care to your friend? Uh, maybe it's not cutting. Maybe it's a friend you have that's going through a season of depression, or maybe it's a friend that's struggling with an addiction. Uh, maybe your friend has going through a great loss, grief, uh, a loved one that's died, um, a medical issue, a cancer diagnosis. Uh, my guess is you're, you're here at this conference because you believe in some way that the Bible and Jesus and Christianity, and and, and the faith that you and I share has something to offer to care for hurting people, right? You you believe that or you probably wouldn't be here. My question is, do you know how to take your faith and and the things that you know from the Word of God and bring that down to to translate that into a, a caring, encouraging, hopeful conversation that might assist your friend and, and and actually be the means that God might have for them for help. And and what we want the the, the point of this conference, guys, is is to help you and I to see that Christ is sufficient, 
and your Bible is sufficient, and Christianity does have something to offer. In fact, we believe Scripture teaches that because it's God's Word, these are the best care options we have to, to bring to hurting people. But, but what we want to do in the conference here is help you to connect this world called the Bible and Christianity, my faith and my church and what I believe, to a conversation, to a, a care moment where all of those things we know and believe about Christ uh, get expressed in a way that helps your friend and cares for your friend and counsels your friend. Okay? So that's why we're here. I hope, I hope, see, I, I, get, I get wound up just talking about that. So I hope that's why you're here, and I hope that by the end of uh, not just this weekend, but the other two weekends, that, that you will be able to go away saying, you know what, I, I know I don't know everything about counseling, and, and I'm going to keep learning, but, but I can see it. I can see how this works. I know Jesus is sufficient, and now I have something of an idea of how I express that sufficiency to a particular problem with a particular person there. Okay, so on your notes there, um, just make some observations about counseling. Have you noticed that everybody counsels? Everybody counsels. How many of you say you're, you're a counselor? Yeah, I'm a counselor, I'm, right? Okay, so most of you don't think you're counselors. Uh, point one, you and I are counselors because everybody counsels. And I can prove this to you by giving you two words. College football. That's all you got to do, Right? If I say college football and I get you football fans together, all of a sudden there's going to have a group counseling session because some of you are going to talk about how great the Aggies are and some of you are going to talk how great the, the horns are, the longhorns are, and, and some of you are going to say, forget all of you, I, I'm, a, I'm a TCU fan or I'm an Oklahoma fan or I'm a, you know, whatever you are, right? So, see, already. Oh, okay. All right. I'll, I'll calm down. But yeah, yeah, and we have people waving in the back. Because you see, all I have to do is say college football and emotion comes out. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to work on a book one day called Everything You Need to Know About Human Beings You Can Learn by Watching a College Football Game. Right? Because it's just, it's so telling about, you know, who we are and why we do what we do and whatnot. But you notice that, right? You don't have to say, oh, we're having counseling right now. You just bring up a subject and all of a sudden people are expressing opinions People are expressing counter-opinions, emotions involved, passions involved. Desire, all this stuff comes out simply because we're talking about college football, right? And everybody everybody has an opinion. E- even, even if you say, I don't care about college football and I don't understand why my husband and all his friends are all... You're still counseling, right? You're expressing your opinion about why you don't think... College football is anything to watch about. So everybody counsels, right? We, we all give advice. We all express opinion. And, and if you'll notice this, um, those opinions are not random. That if you believe that the Texas A&M Aggies are God's team, right? And I, I'm not going to go too far because you'll start singing the fight song and then we'll, we'll lose you. But... If you believe that, that's not because you just fell out of bed one day as an Aggie. Well, actually, I guess there's a theology that says you can be born an Aggie. I've seen the little onesies and all that. But no, it's because there's a whole worldview behind that, right? There's a belief system. You may have gone there. You you may uh, have friends there. You may believe the band's great, the football team, right? That, that, uh, That counseling opinion doesn't come out of a vacuum. There's a system. And I've seen your systems, I've been to your house on Saturday. I've seen the maroon, it's maroon, right? Is that right? 
uh, I get my colors right. right. I've seen the apparel and the helmets and the shirts and all that. There's a whole system that goes with this. Everybody counsels and everybody counsels out of a belief system. And we could call that belief system a worldview. And it may be something like college football. It may be something different, maybe something more serious. It may be... Um, it may be that you have an opinion about why people struggle with depression. Or maybe, maybe you see a family at church one morning and you see their kids acting a certain way and you kind of mumble under your breath to your husband something about the parenting philosophy that led to said behavior. Right? So we all counsel... That counsel comes out of an opinion, and that opinion reflects a belief system or a worldview, a way of viewing things. I mean, I mean, just think about that. If if if, a, if we had a person right here that uh, had a, a clinical diagnosis of a major depressive disorder, and we went around the room and I said, "Why is this person struggling with depression?" You wouldn't all give us the same answer, would you? You might say, well, they have a genetic issue. You might say, well, they had trouble with their family, some trauma. You, you might say they have a chemical imbalance. You, you might say, um, you know, it, it was about their upbringing. You, you might say uh, it's their broken marriage. You know, we, we all have opinions that we believe that forms our worldview that leads to how we interpret people and how we're going to counsel them if we have that occasion. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So we all counsel. We all have a system it's based on a worldview. And have you noticed that our systems are not neutral? You know, maybe that person does have a chemical imbalance, or maybe it's all about their family dysfunction. Um, good night. If I get a, a, a UT Longhorn fan and a Texas A&M Aggie, it ain't neutral. I'm telling you, it's not neutral, right? I mean, there, it's... In fact, if you notice this, that our worldviews are apologetic. When we give advice... We're trying to convert the other person very often to our viewpoint, aren't we? And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying what we believe about anything in life is not neutral. We're giving advice saying, I think this is the problem. This is what you need to do. Or I think this is the best football team to root for, let's say. All those are, are realities about counseling. And even though we're not talking about formal counseling necessarily, it's really important to recognize that we're all counselors. We all have a counseling system. It's based on our worldview. And those systems are not neutral. So when we come to think about how do we care for people in a counseling conversation, recognize that that, that, that what we're going to say, and even before we say something, how we interpret what's going on, that that comes out of what we believe and what we view, how we view the world. Now... If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, the Bible has something to say about that belief system, about that worldview. Would you turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this is a biblical counseling conference. So you're going to hear you're going to hear that phrase a lot this weekend. In fact, I hope you hear it multiple times in every session. Please turn with me in your Bible toward, or, you know, preachers have it really hard today. We can't even say that anymore. Please, you know, open up your phone and click your Bible. What do you say? However you get to God's Word, please do that right now and get over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verses 16 and 17. Because if you're a Christian, a Christian's worldview, by definition, ought to be shaped by the Word of God. And again, don't, don't take my word for it. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. As we, as we come to the Word of God and, and to this letter in particular, we recognize that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing. Uh, the Spirit of God is using him to write God's Word. And in this case, he's, <clears throat> he's writing a letter to um, his, his, his uh, disciple, his younger spiritual son, you might think of him, in the faith, Timothy. Timothy is the pastor, uh, one of the pastors at Ephesus where he and Paul worked alongside one another for a number of years. Paul had to leave. He leaves Timothy there and uh, to, to train up and raise up elders and to establish uh, leadership in the church and to shepherd God's people. The, se- the second letter, 2 Timothy, is probably the last letter that Paul wrote. So it, it's, it's personal. It, it has a, a tone of urgency to it. And uh, as he's turning the corner going into chapter 3, he's reminding Timothy of his heritage uh, the background that he had, he learned the, the scriptures from childhood. And as he's recollecting on that and encouraging Timothy to stay the course, he writes these amazing words in verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God, literally breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. Uh, this is a profound text, and, and we could spend a whole hour talking about this, but let me just hit the highlights of what this verse is teaching and how it helps us to think about a worldview as it relates to a counseling system. Notice, first of all, uh, the, the, the point here that the Bible is inspired. Uh, literally, the text says it is God-breathed. Not inspired like, oh, I see that sunset and I want to write poetry inspired. No, not like that. Inspired in the sense that it, it is the very word of God. Paul is communicating that even though a human author is used as an agent, what is being written here is the word of God. And, and of course, we understand that as the doctrine of inspiration. But notice, secondly, uh, Paul writes here that the Bible is authoritative. If it really is God-breathed, it carries with it the authority of God Himself. Just like if you write a document or a letter or a text message, that, that communication is coming from you and represents you. So it's inspired, right? It's God's Word, and thus it is authoritative, and it carries God's authority. Thirdly, if it is God's Word and it has God's authority, we recognize that the Bible is inerrant. It's, it doesn't have any errors in it. You, you say, where do you get that? Well, we don't need to turn there, but if you flip the page, two pages to the right, to Titus chapter 1, when Paul writes to Titus, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, that God cannot lie. You know there's some things God can't do? Some things God can't do. God is never going to deny His nature. And one of the things that God is, according to Scripture, is truth. And therefore, God cannot deny His nature. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. He cannot be wrong in what He communicates. So if the Word of God, or if the Bible is God's Word, and it brings God's authority, then it also can't fail us. There's no errors in it because God is incapable of lying. 
And then notice where he goes with this, right? He says, uh, fourthly, that the Bible is practical. Look at the description here. He says, uh, the, all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. That word means useful for, and then he gives some categories here, teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Teaching, that's obvious, right? The Bible is going to instruct us on all sorts of things. Knowledge, wisdom, how do we understand people and God and salvation and people's problems and what we do about it, right? Notice, secondly, it, it reproves. That, that word means that the Bible is going to uh, call us out at times and say, that's wrong, don't go that direction. That, that's the, the incorrect way to look about that or, or live like that. It's, it's going to correct, it's going to uh, reprove us in terms of calling us out. Um, something we're doing wrong. And then thirdly, the compliment, it corrects. The Bible doesn't just say that's wrong. The Bible says, here's how you fix it. Here's a better way to go than what you're doing. And then finally, that little phrase there, training in righteousness, that's a really a global term there that just expresses the idea that God's word is able to equip us for every opportunity uh, to grow in righteousness, to grow in the image of Christ. And then, you know, put this all together, the, the verse 17, so that, right, this is the, the result clause, the purpose clause here, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Um, and th- th- this, is, this is one of those verses that you really have to take a breath and look and say, is the Bible really saying what it sounds like it's saying? What this sounds like it's saying is that Scripture is sufficient to equip believers for every good work. Every scenario in life. In fact, the word there, adequate, emphasizes sufficiency. Um, So let me just ask you this. Do you believe that the Bible actually does that? That it is able to equip you and I as followers of Christ... For every occasion, every good work, every opportunity, the Bible gives me what I need to live in that moment, to to act in that moment the way that would please and honor God. That's what it's claiming. And uh, and I I just want to tell you something. This is dangerous stuff. This is dangerous stuff. Because if if you believe what this is teaching, it will change your life. It'll change your life in terms of where you and I go, where we run to, what we look to as a source to help us to have what we need to honor God. Okay, Let me show you a, kind of a parallel verse, uh, not in this book, but in another book. Just turn to the right or click to the right a few uh, books to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, and as you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about Second Peter. Uh, Peter, we know, the apostle of Jesus. Uh, he wrote uh, a couple of letters here at the end of our Bibles. Peter, Peter remember, is writing uh, as the Roman persecution of Christians is increasing. And, of course, he's writing to brand-new Christians. It's the early church. They don't have a written New Testament yet. That It's being written literally as he speaks. And Peter is writing to believers that are suffering, that are being persecuted, that are going through very, very difficult things. And he's writing to them to help them to know, where do you turn? What, what, what source do you have? What, what reference do you have to deal with suffering and trials and persecution? 
And uh, so in Second Peter chapter 1, we'll pick it up here. Uh, he introduces himself in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he writes this greeting, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, now, hang on to your hat here, okay? Seeing that His divine power has granted to us... What's the next word? Everything or all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Peter's not even out of the starting blocks here. He's so eager to help those suffering Christians that he's writing to, to know the wealth of resource that they have in the person of Jesus. It's what launches his letter. Now now follow me here. Listen to what Peter's claiming. He's claiming, look back at the text, that Christ's divine power, the, the very power of Jesus himself, has granted to us believers... Most things we need for life and godliness, right? Is that what your Bible says? Everything, all things. Christ's divine power has been given to us, granted to us, right? What does it say there? So that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. You say, wow. The divine power of Jesus has been granted to believers such that believers have everything they need for life and godliness. Where do we get that? Well, it says there, we get that through the true knowledge of Christ, which comes, uh, who called us by His own glory and excellence. Verse 4, he talks about these, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. So where he goes, we don't have time to develop all of this, but when he talks about the knowledge of Him, the precious and magnificent promises, he follows that theme all the way to the end of the letter, where he just comes out and says it, that that, that that knowledge of Christ comes through the Scriptures, through the Word of God. Okay, so, so here, here's the thing. Christ's divine power, the very power of Jesus, the second person of the, of the Trinity, has been granted to believers to the degree that they have everything they need for life and godliness. And that power is mediated or, or comes to us through the Scriptures. Okay, are you with me? That's the claim. On your notes there, Christ's divine power has come. It comes through the knowledge as revealed in Scripture. And it provides believers everything they need, quote, for life and godliness. My question is, do you really believe that? Do you believe that you as a Christian, someone who has turned from sin, trusted in Christ alone for salvation, do you believe that Christ has granted to you through His Word everything you and I need for life and for godliness. That's a challenge, isn't it? That's a pretty bold claim. And and like I'm warning you, you believe that that will change your life. It will change how you parent. It will change how you deal with conflict in your marriage. It 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 will change how you go about dealing with personal sin and struggles. It will change uh, your priorities in life in terms of people and stuff and hobbies. It will change how you think about temptation. It, It will change where you run when you have a life problem. It'll change everything if you believe it. Because if this is true, then Christ has given the believer everything he needs for life and godliness, and that power is mediated through 
the scriptures themselves. Okay. Now, with those two thinking, those two uh, verses there, we can conclude the power of Jesus, which comes to believers through the agency of the scriptures, is fully sufficient for handling all the difficulties and challenges of life. That's that life and godliness phrase. So if that's, again, if that's true, what the Bible is claiming is it is sufficient for counseling. You say, how do we get to counseling? That's life and godliness. That's equipped for every good work. The, the, the scope of these verses in terms of the sufficiency of Scripture is inclusive of what we think of as life problems, or more technically, we could call them counseling problems. Uh, in other words, the Scripture is sufficient for counseling. Not only is the Scripture sufficient for counseling, let me ask you this. Can you think of anywhere else in the world you can go to find something that is more sufficient, more authoritative, more inerrant, God-breathed. It's not only... You can't find anywhere else like this. Only the Word of God is unique in this way. It's not just a sufficient source. It's the only God-breathed source that we can turn to to build a counseling system. Now, now a footnote. I make it, maybe make some of you nervous here. The Bible's not saying that we can't find other helpful information and in other sources. Not, it's not saying that. It's not saying that you know medicine can't be helpful or you know studying people's behavior can't be helpful. It's not saying that. What it's saying is Christ and His Word is what we truly need to deal with this broken world and to help people to deal with this broken world in a sufficient and adequate way that pleases the Lord. And again, my challenge to you is, do you believe that? And, and uh, so let, let's say, for sake of argument, let's say we say, okay, that's a big claim, but let's, let's take God at His word. Well, let's take the Bible at face value and say, okay, Lord, I believe that. Help, help me to believe that. Where do we go next? If, if the Bible is, is true, authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, it's God's word, how do we get from that thought to counseling or a counseling system or, or, you know, I'm going to sit down with this person that has an anxiety disorder and how does that work? Okay, so, so let me introduce you to something we call the theological pyramid, okay? Biblical counseling seeks to build a system of counseling from the biblical worldview world revealed in the Word of God. So let me introduce you to the theological pyramid, okay? So take what I just told you about the scriptures and um, you've got the complete one in your notes there, don't you? Okay. So if you want to just, that's what it's going to look like in a minute, but if I could turn your attention to the PowerPoint, I want to build this for you, okay? Can I build it? So what we just said is the Bible is unlike any other source. It's God-breathed, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, it's the Word of God, it's adequate for life and godliness because it mediates the very power of Jesus himself. Okay, so we start there. We'll call that level one. We say, okay, so we got a Bible. Great, what do we do next? Well, the second thing you have to do is you have to interpret it rightly. Because the reality is, if we don't understand the Word of God the way God intended it, we don't have God's message, do we? Do you like being misunderstood? You just love it when your spouse says, oh, and you're like, that's not what I was... Right? Do you love being misunderstood? Of course you don't, okay? We don't want to misunderstand the Word of God and thus misrepresent God, right? That's why we need these two words that are hard to pronounce. Exegesis, right? And interpretation. You say, exegesis, what's that? 
Exegesis is simply a word in theology we use to talk about um, bringing out the meaning of the text. We read it with the idea of understanding what did God mean? What did the author mean? And we do this all the time. You, you do this with your newspaper. You do this with your social media. You do it with, with your text messages, right? We're, we're, we're interpreting communication all the time. And when it comes to the Bible, all we're saying is you can have the Bible, but if you're not interpreting it rightly, you, you don't have God's message, right? So we start with the Bible. That's level one. But we have to interpret it rightly, which means... You and I have to learn how to do that. Uh, If you want to be someone who would represent God accurately by ministering the word of God to hurting people, guess what? You've got to learn how to interpret his word right. And so we're going to teach you how to do that. We're going to give you resources on how to do that. We're going to demonstrate hopefully how you do that. And hopefully this isn't brand new to you. Hopefully you're in a church where your pastor demonstrates this every Sunday from the pulpit. And then when you go to your adult Bible fellowship or your Sunday school class, you see it represented there. And then when you drop your kids off at children's ministry, your kids are seeing the Bible accurately interpreted as well. And hopefully the books you're reading and the blog posts, hopefully you're reading the sorts of things that are representing proper interpretation. Because if you get the interpretation wrong, you get God's message wrong. And none of us wants to do that, right? So scriptures, that's level one. Then we have to rightly interpret the Word of God. That's level two. Thirdly, We want to draw out biblical theology. You say, what does that mean? That means as we read the Word of God and we rightly interpret it, we want to begin to extract what the Bible teaches about certain topics. So, for example, let's say we're studying Romans, the the book of Romans, and um, we want to track through Romans. What does Romans teach about salvation? So we, we study the book, rightly interpret it, and we're pulling out everything we learn in Romans about the topic of salvation. That's called biblical theology. What does Romans teach about salvation? Maybe we do the same thing studying Romans about the doctrine of sin, or maybe we study about um, conflict and getting along with people. And Romans chapter 12 talks about that. So, right? so we're studying the Bible and we're looking, what's the message? right? And we're trying to, what does it say about this topic and this topic and this topic? And you can do that in Romans, you can do that with Lamentations, you can do that with Genesis. You can study any book of the Bible to try to figure out what does this book teach me about a specific subject. That's called biblical theology. Well, let's say we take everything that Genesis says about sin and everything that Exodus says about sin and everything that Leviticus says about sin, on and on and on and on, through the whole Bible... And we pull the whole Bible together and say, I want a comprehensive understanding of what it teaches about sin or salvation or suffering or Christ. Well, then you have what? Systematic theology, right? As the name implies, we're systematizing. We're bringing everything the whole Bible says about one particular topic, and we call that systematic theology. You see how this works? We start with the Bible, proper interpretation. What does the book teach? What does the whole Bible teach? What goes on the top there? Don't look at your notes. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. I saw that. See, What goes on the top? Application. Application. Do you know that God did not give us information about himself, about people, about salvation, about any time? He didn't give us that so we can win a Sunday school award. Right? He didn't give us that so that when it's, you know, it's double jeopardy and they have, you know, biblical places for $400, you know, so you could win that category. He, no, the, mark, mark it, guys. 
Every time we learn something in the Bible about God or people or suffering or sin, it's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. I was just, I was just going through um, Psalm 56 today. You guys know Psalm 56? It's a psalm about fear, dealing with fear. And uh, the, the, the high point of the psalm, the, the psalm says, um, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then the, the climax, the chorus, repeats that, but it says this, And this I know. That God is for me. In God is word I praise. And the Lord has word I praise. And he goes on and on. And, and the question is, why would God put in that psalm this theological concept that God is with his people? Why would he do that? Why would he say, this I know that God is for me. I'm on his, time, on, on his team, right? He's with me. I'm with him. Why would he do that? Well, because the whole psalm is about what? Fear. It's not like God says, hey, just, just, I want you to know I, I'm with you just so that you can put that on the shelf and, and get a star in Sunday school class this Sunday. Right? Theology comes, not in a vacuum in the Bible, guys. Theology comes. God discloses himself to us because we have needs. Because in the moment of fear... God wants to communicate to me, yeah, these people are chasing. You read the context behind that psalm where David is fleeing. He's alone. He goes back to Gath where, where he, killed, he killed Goliath. And, and uh, the, Saul and his men are chasing him. David's by himself. He's dealing with fear. And that's the context where God communicates to David, I just want you to know I'm with you. And I'm not going to leave you. See, theology is practical. Theology is about you and I knowing this God or finding comfort from this God or finding wisdom for direction, for a decision. Theology is never given just as a subject. Theology is given to transform you and encourage you and change you and help you and direct you. So, so the, the capstone of the theological pyramid is what we call practical theology. Practical theology is so what? Practical theology is, okay, I learned this in my Bible, what do I do with it? You know, um, you know if, if uh, I went over to somebody's house and, and they, they showed me tools and, and demonstrated how to do oil change on their truck, and the goal would not be I, I go home and go, oh, yeah, that's great. The, the, the goal is now I can do an oil change, right? Or I know something about how to do that. And, and so the Bible gives us all these things to put into practice. So if you think about it, and, and this, is, this goes to your, uh, your completed version there, level one is really answering the question, what does the text say, right? Well, what's there? Level two is what does the text mean, right? Am I, I'm rightly interpreting it. What did God mean? What did the author mean in what was written? The third level is asking the question, what truths and doctrines does it teach? What can I learn from this particular passage or book? If I put the whole Bible together, what does the whole Bible say about that? And there's the capstone, the practical theology. How does it apply to my life? Okay. Do you know that a lot of Christians live stopping right there? Don't they? They can define the Trinity. They can explain justification by faith. They might have memorized the biblical books. They know the difference between Moses and Noah, right? And, but they stop here. And, and can I just tell you, that, that is not why God tells us 
the things in the Bible. It's always for a purpose of you and I being transformed and changed to know this God more and to be like his son more. Um, So if you're with, are you with me? Is this making sense? Okay, so if you're with me, you recognize that this this top category, and uh, you know when the battery flashes, that must mean it's dead, right, guys? Okay, so uh, okay, well the laser's not working, but the clicker's working, so we'll see if we can get through it here. Okay, so the point is, guys, that that's, that top layer, that that practical theology, is where biblical counseling really is developed, right? What we're doing in terms of practical theology is just saying, in light of all those other levels, what does the Bible teach us? So on your notes there, um, just kind of giving you some definitions for what I've already said, right? So you can remember those and think about those. Now, now follow me. If we have level five without level one to four, it's not biblical counseling. If I get to the practical, right, I, here's, here's this person that's anxious, here's this person that's depressed, here's this person that has a marriage issue. If I just jump in and start giving advice, but I don't build that advice on the Bible and on interpretation and on theology, I'm not giving biblical counsel, am I? I'm giving counsel, but I'm not giving biblical counsel. Because here's, here's the secret, guys. We counsel out of our theology. We counsel out of what we really believe about God and people and their problems. And that's why we have to pay attention to levels one to four, because if we don't get levels one to four right, we just jump to giving advice. You know, we we care about the person, we want to help them, that's a good impulse. But if we don't do the hard work of saying, what does God say, we're not really counseling them biblically, are we? Um, Remember this, guys, bad theologians make bad counselors, because we counsel out of our theology, okay? Biblical counseling is not just a system of counseling with scripture sprinkled over it. There's Christian counseling out there that is Sigmund Freud, Carl Rogers, Alfred Adler, and all those other systems out there, right? And then they throw a couple of Bible verses on top to make it sound Christian. And that's not... That's not really what biblical counseling is. Biblical counseling is starting from the ground up and saying we're trying to to pull a system together based on the Word of God. And this is a problem today because there are a lot of people. There's a lot of people in the blogosphere. There's a lot of people writing books. There's a lot of people telling even the church from outside how people grow and change. And, And a lot of times the folks that are doing that, they don't know the Bible. They don't know theology. They they don't right? They're not in a solid church. And and while we might appreciate a heart that wants to communicate how we help people, that's good. If we don't do the hard work of getting the text right and getting theology right, then our counsel is going to be tainted by bad theology, and thus we don't actually help people. And you know, if you think about it, um, human reason based on observation by unbelievers is unreliable. Um, we believe that the Word of God, as we trust Christ, transforms believers uh, more and more into His image and that God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear to understand and, and His very Spirit and the Word of God. And, and, and yet, a lot of the answers out in the world are really unbelievers studying other unbelievers in order to conclude, this is health, this is normality. Now, a footnote, I'm not saying human studies aren't helpful or or any observations aren't helpful. What I'm saying is that is an insufficient foundation for building a biblical counseling system. We we need, we we must have revelation. 
We have to have what God says to know how to interpret what's going on out there. So for counseling to be truly biblical, we must have an active, the scriptures must have an active functional control. Now let's flip it around. Um, if we have levels one to four, right, we get our theology right, our hermeneutics right, you know, we love commentaries and systematic theologies and we have, you know, old books on our shelf, right? And that's all great, but it's not transforming our life. We're not bringing our thoughts to line up with God's thoughts. That all that theology isn't warming our heart, producing more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, then something is terribly wrong, right? Because a theology that doesn't get to the heart and get into application um, is missing the whole point. The task of biblical counselors, and I would say believers in general, is to minister the Word of God, not just throw Bible verses as a problem. This is one of the sort of caricatures. There's a lot of caricatures about all forms of counseling. Uh, but especially biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is not just saying, take these two verses and call me in the morning. Right? And, and maybe, maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've seen somebody do that. Let me just tell you, that's not biblical counseling. Biblical counseling requires a lot of the same work that your pastor does each week to prepare a sermon. It's prayerfully considering a text. It's studying that text. It's learning what did God mean through the human author. It's pulling out uh, principles there. It's thinking about how do I communicate these things in a way that's helpful. And then the, the, the wonderful part about counseling, which you know, in the pulpit your, your pastor hopefully is giving some you know, general application, but he's got a whole bunch of people out there with different stories. Whereas in biblical counseling, you can take that principle and you can personalize it for that, perp- that person's unique story, that, that person's unique situation. And so you're giving them a tailored application and that's why that's why I think this ministry is so wonderful because you get to walk alongside a hurting brother or sister and give them particular counsel that fits their exact circumstance. And uh, so that's what we're trying to do in counseling, right? We're not just trying to you know be able to to get an A on a theology exam. We're wanting it to transform us first, and then we come alongside and help others be transformed. So that leads us kind of to our definition, okay? Let me tell you what biblical counseling is not, and let me tell you what it is. Um, First of all, it's not an autonomous ministry. It is not an autonomous ministry. Um, Biblical counseling, you know, one of the problems with the word counseling is that counseling has been professionalized in our culture, and and I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I think it it just helps, it kind of shapes how we think about the term, And in the Bible, counseling or caring for people is a normal, regular function of the local church. It's not autonomous. It's not out there somewhere. It belongs in the local church. But again, don't don't take my word for it. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this to the Ephesian believers. He says, He, God, gave some as apostles, this is verse 11, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Okay, so there's the leaders, right? What do the leaders do? Verse 12, they equip the saints, that's Christians, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You say, what is that? The, the, the biblical vision is leaders equip believers and believers engage in caring for one another. That's how a healthy church is supposed to function. And, and, and that, that caring includes a, a more formal caring 
where I'm coming alongside somebody with a particular challenge in life and I'm caring for them particularly for that need from the Word of God. We call that biblical counseling or sometimes we just call it intensive discipleship. But it belongs in the local church. It's a mandate to the local church. The reality is counseling in your church is not an option according to God. It's, it's, a, it's a biblical design that we all should um, strive for in our local churches. You know, it's also not an activity, uh, activity reserved for the experts. It's the duty of, a belie- of all believers to disciple and counsel at some level. You don't need to turn there, but Paul in uh, Romans chapter 15 writes that believers, all believers are quote-unquote competent to counsel. Meaning every believer has what they need in Christ, in the Spirit, in the Word of God to care for one another. And so it's not an activity for the experts. It's not an activity for just, you know, these, uh, you know, elite sort of, you know, Christian Navy SEALs or something like that. It is the calling of all believers to counsel at some level. It's also not an optional ministry. We saw that in Ephesians. If we look at parallel thoughts in, in Acts 20, verse 31, uh, that's a, a neat reference there because Paul is leaving Ephesus and he's talking about his example and he just says, I was here for over three years and I did not cease to minister the word of God publicly and from house to house. And that little phrase, house to house, simply means that Paul didn't just preach from the pulpit, but he went from family to family, individual to individual, and cared for them in a one-on-one conversation. And, uh, you know, it's not called counseling in that verse, but it's describing counseling. It's, it's describing a discipleship conversation. So, again, it's not an optional ministry. Biblical counseling is designed by God to be a part of the local church and carried out at some level by every believer. And as we're using the term, biblical counseling is not an uh, an entity separate from discipleship. We could think of it as intensive discipleship. Or sometimes we'll call it biblical counseling is intensive discipleship for a particular need or needs. Okay? So with that in mind, the Bible calls all believers to do this at some level. We saw that. Uh, We won't turn right now for sake of time, but uh, Titus chapter 2 actually gives us a second level of discipleship, right? So every Christian is called to disciple at some level, right? That's Romans 15, 14. Titus chapter 2 says, okay, you need another layer of discipleship. We need older, more mature people training younger, less mature. Uh, We could call that mentoring or we could call it intensive discipling. Um, And interestingly, in Titus... Uh, Paul points out that that ought to be gender specific. So you have older women training younger women. You have older men training younger men. And that's uh, God's design for discipleship. But that's a more intensive, a more particular uh, form of discipleship. And then lastly, sort of the top layer of discipleship is that God calls the pastor elders of the local church, the leadership of the church, to engage in formal formally caring for God's people. Uh, uh, And we see this, there's a number of verses there. Let me just read for you uh, from from Peter's first letter. Uh, He's writing actually to the elders among, remember he's writing to all these Christians that are suffering, and here he's calling out the elders, the pastor elders here. And he says in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, as a witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not lording it over them, 
but proving to be examples to the flock. You hear that? That the elder pastors are called to care for God's people as under-shepherds under the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we put all that together, we, we can think of at least three levels of discipleship as I think about them in the local church. You have the elder pastors that have sort of a formal care. God holds them responsible to care for the people in any given uh, church body. Underneath the elders are these qualified and trained believers, the older training younger in gender-specific uh, counseling or training. We see that in Titus chapter 2. And then the bottom layer is what we saw in Ephesians chapter 4. All believers are ministering to one another, caring for one another at one level uh, or another. And you can see as we move up the column, it looks more formal. It's more intensive. As we move down the column, it, it, it looks more like fellowship. It looks more like just a conversation. And it tends to be less intense, more general in nature. But the point is, if we're going to be healthy churches... We have to have a culture of discipleship. Or you can think of it as a culture of caring for people. It starts with the leaders. It identifies you know, mature, godly believers that can be trained to engage in that in a more formal way. But it includes every member of the local church who sees it as their job in some way to care for one another. And Paul says back in Ephesians, when the whole body is doing that, it cares for itself and it grows in unity and in maturity. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of uh, what we're trying to aim for in the local church. So that leads us, with that thought in mind, that leads us to our definition of biblical counseling. And that is simply to say biblical counseling is the practice of caring for and ministering to believers toward greater Christ-likeness through the careful use of the Scriptures for the glory of God. Okay? And again, that, that's not comprehensive, but that just gives you an idea when we say biblical counseling, that's what we're talking about. It's a ministry of care for other people where we come alongside, we minister to them from the Word of God, and we want to encourage them toward greater Christ-likeness and encouragement and all for God's glory. If we break that down in just some particulars, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because other sessions are going to overview this in more detail, but, but when we say we looked at what it's not, if we break it down and talk about what is it, what is this biblical counseling thing? It's a, it's a ministry that discerns thinking, desires, and behavior that God wants to change. Um, like most counseling systems, biblical counseling strives to take a person from where they are to a better place. Most counseling systems do that. In biblical counseling, what we're trying to do is not just move them to where I think they need to go or where a system thinks they need to go, but in biblical counseling, we're trying to help that person move to where God would want them to be, to find greater encouragement and, uh, and joy in Him. It also involves ministering from God's Word by means of the Holy Spirit. Um, it, biblical counseling is probably the only counseling system that says it's not about the counselor, ultimately. I mean, certainly we are stewards. We want to care for people well. We want to represent the Bible. We, we, we want to come alongside and love people well. But ultimately, we're saying to a brother, sister in Christ, it's not about me, it's about him. And my job as your brother and sister in Christ, functioning as a counselor, is to, to simply help you to know from the Word how God wants to care for you in this situation. So so we're, a, you know, we're, we're, we're the waiter, right? I... You know, when people come up and they say, oh, it's a great teaching, I often say, you know, it's easy to be the waiter when everybody loves the food so much, right? 
And that's what we're doing in, in, in biblical counseling is we're just we're waiters bringing the care of, of God through the word of God and connecting them in that way. And, uh, and again, another thing that makes counseling unique, biblical counseling unique, is that our main goal is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Uh, we want to help the person, care for the person, do good to the person, yes. But like everything else in a Christian's world, every, every other goal comes up under this grander goal that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, including counseling, we do what? All to the glory of God, right? And one final thought. Just because it's called biblical counseling, it may not be. Okay, and, and let me tell you, we're, we're not here to, to criticize other systems or critique other... That, that's not it at all. What I'm trying to help you to see is when we talk about biblical counseling, what do we mean and what do we not mean? And, and in our culture today, uh, biblical counseling is pretty vague. It's like evangelical. It used to mean something objective 50 years ago, and now it's kind of this fluffy, vague term that means whatever you want it to mean. So biblical counseling no longer has much of an objective term or objective meaning. So let me just flesh this out, okay? Not all biblical counseling is biblical. Uh, some quote-unquote biblical counseling out there is really just secular psychology performed by Christians. Um, some of it is what we might call neo-biblical counseling where a person might be using concepts from the Word of God and using the Word of God, but they're coupling that with other systems, other, other practices, other theologies, other secular systems, Right? And again, I'm not saying at this point whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's not biblical counseling. Um, that's actually what we, we used to call integrationism. And then some biblical counseling is counseling performed by believers with secular counseling background. And though they try to make their counseling biblical, they lack appropriate training to ensure that the counseling is truly biblical. And, and, um, and again, not throwing rocks, not trying to critique, just saying biblical counseling is not just... I'm a Christian on my counseling. And it's not just uh, I'm using the Bible, but I'm bringing in other things. And it's not just I'm trying really hard to be biblical, but all my training is really in a more secular discipline, right? Um, you say, well, how do you know? What, what, what's, <laughs> what's biblical counseling then if we've got to be careful? Well, be a good Berean. Uh, Paul commended the Berean Christians in Acts 17 because what? They tested what they were hearing from apostles every day to make sure that it was lining up with the scriptures that they knew. Can I just say that? That, that applies to me. That applies to this conference. That applies to the resources you're going to find in the bookstore. We want to test everything against the word of God. And it's only the word of God that can give us the standard to say it passes the test of biblical fidelity. Okay, so be a good Berean. Uh, ask some questions like this. Do they counsel solely on the basis of the Word of God? Is, you know, is the Word of God where all the action is? Are they using uh, biblical terms and concepts? You know, if we believe that this is God's Word and that God is giving us what we need for life and godliness, we probably should pay attention to God's perspective. We probably should pay attention to the terms He uses, the concepts He uses, uh, the principles that he reveals. And, and even though there might be secular terms that are somewhat equivalent, uh, we want to major on what God says, how he says it, with the language that he says it. Because again, words and concepts, all of those contribute to a biblical perspective. So if someone's doing biblical counseling, but 
what you're hearing doesn't sound like your Bible, we might want to double check and make sure what's going on there. Do they minister the word using accurate interpretation of a passage applied to real life situations? Uh, Again, um, sadly, the Bible can be used, but it can be used uh, not by interpreting it properly. And again, if we're misinterpreting what God is saying, we're getting the message wrong. If we get the message wrong, it's not biblical counseling. So proper interpretation. Is it applied to to real... Biblical counseling is not just getting together for a Bible study and saying, can you define the Trinity? Can you explain salvation by grace? Great, let's go home. It's, it's, It's that, but it's then, okay, how does that transform and help and encourage and 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 direct this thing that you're dealing with in life right now how how does it minister to you and help you with that Um, so there's application that's needed there and do they have appropriate training in biblical counseling again training uh, you know there there are people that minister the word of god faithfully and well and they've never been to a conference like this and you know what praise god for them right they're probably smarter than all of us Um, but but most of us uh, need training in local churches uh, or maybe a, a, a training program of some sort and that, that can help to, to you know, show you and I is it really a, a biblical counseling system that they're buying into. All right. So God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It comes through Christ's power, through the Word of God and that means if you're a Christian, we have been entrusted with a resource like no other. And God gives us His Word as the church. Why? To be the pillar and support of the truth. And uh, I just want to encourage you. There is a dark, lost, fallen, hurting world out there. And God calls us as Christians in the local church, equipped with the Word of God by which we utilize Christ's power and His Spirit, God commissions us to take that care and that help to this broken world. And I hope that 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 resonates with why you're here. Because we're going to spend the next nine sessions teaching you how to do that. All right? Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank You that You have given us such a wonderful gift in the Word of God, because it reveals Your Son and connects us with Your Spirit, all under the fatherhood of God Himself. And Lord, I thank You that it is a sufficient resource for life and godliness. And and that means that we can build a counseling system that is not just great, but is unlike any other because of what Your Word is and because of who You are. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that as we dip our toe in the pool of biblical counseling this weekend, that you will work in their hearts that we have been given such a gift and a stewardship that this world needs the care of Jesus and you have commissioned us as your church to connect them to that care. So Father, I pray that that you would start a great work in our hearts this weekend and that we might go away equipped and passionate to take your word to lost and hurting people in our communities. We're grateful. Pray you bless us this weekend. Thank you for the joy of being together. In Jesus' name, amen.